Chapter 14 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 14 The Knockdown. In looking over Fox's diary the other day, I ran across some amusing entries he made during the gale of Tuesday, November 16th, with the description of which we concluded the last chapter. These fragments give a pretty good idea of what was happening aboard Typhoon, and at the risk of shattering the dignity of the skipper, I am putting them down in the interests of veracity. Tuesday, November 16th, 6 a.m. Lacing of main gaff carried away. Blowing hard. Charles at wheel calls me. 6.10. Wind backs to east-northeast. Blowing harder. Half lower mainsail to keep steerage way and hoist jib. Blowing and raining like old Nick. Jim came up to lend me a hand, and went below to get dry and warm when we had half-lowered mainsail. WWN just woke up as Jim was casually dressing. He heard the wind whistling and mainsail flapping and got wild. We all do when hungry. He chewed Jim up, and then rushed up forward to me and banged me on the nose with his elbow. Good job I was there, as he might have gone overboard, motion of ship pretty bad, but my nose brought him up. I asked him, have you hurt your elbow? He said, a bit. He thought it was the mast he had hit until I explained afterward. We doused and secured mainsail in crutch. 10 o'clock. Been running under jib only since 6.10 a.m. WWN at wheel thinks wind too much for jib and that it may carry away. Heavy sea. 10.30. Jim, Charles, and I got out and half-hoisted trysail and doused jib. Oilskin's no good, as every now and then I went under, usually up to my waist as standing on bobstay and leaning on whisker shrouds. Jim asked me once if I hurt myself as I got banged against bowsprit. I replied, no, but I must have given myself a hell of a twist, as I noticed that my oilskin trousers were on wrong side around. Then I told him and Charles the tale about the chap who had a similar experience, they were holding on to the mast, and I was out on the bowsprit, so I had to shout the story. Don't know if Jim heard it or not. He laughed at the right time, anyway, but this may have been only his politeness. WWN at wheel getting impatient, so take my time to hoist trysail. Would like a penny for every time I have answered, Nothing broke, only a wheel come off, to his questions when anything breaks or carries away. That is one of my bad habits, trying to rub people up the wrong way. It is rotten of me, as WWN owns the ship and is responsible for irresponsible kids like Jim and me. Sheet tackle got adrift as we were hoisting trysail, so Charles held on to my feet, and I leaned overboard for it. Charles has altered wonderfully since the gale off San Miguel, and now is the busiest man on the ship. After we finished lashing tender, I undressed in cockpit and stood up in rain and bathed with real soap. WWN was amused, and said, Well, you intend to go to your maker clean, anyway. Heaviest wind we have had, also sea. WWN at wheel is having a strenuous time. She is a good little ship. Wonderful the way she can stand it. Sincerely hope schooner we passed is okay. 310. Charles relieved me at the wheel. Sea's worse, which seemed impossible five hours ago. Everything can be worse, but still, it is not very comforting when you lose 30 bob and a friend tells you it is better than losing 60. We got knocked down, our masts in the water. 
I had just taken off my oilies and was standing at the end of the table when, bang, and over to port we went. I grabbed the table and Dillaway's bunk. he just managed to stay in it. Jim dropped from his bunk onto WWN, who was lying on the port seat. Jim had an amazed expression on his face as he cleared Diddy Box on dresser. I wanted to laugh. Hadn't time to get frightened before she came up. I suddenly thought of Charles and looked through the port and was relieved to see him sitting at the wheel with a very worried expression on his face. There was the cockpit full of water and our empty water kegs floating about with the last of our salt beef. Charles looked exactly like Robinson Crusoe on his raft, just leaving the wreck. He looked so funny that I laughed like hell, which made WWN wild as he had just discovered his pajamas all covered with fuel oil. Then we had a heated argument, the skipper and I, raised voices but could not wave our arms as we had to hold on to either end of the table, about both sterns. I believe in a double-ender and the skipper in a broad stern. She is a wonderful boat, but I think she'd be more wonderful if she had a stern like a Scotch fishing nebby. After the knockdown, I took the wheel at about dusk. Things looked pretty bad, and I considered rigging up the sea anchor, but finally decided to take a chance with the trysail rather than experiment with something untried. In order to make the steering easier and to check her speed as she shot down the seas, we trailed two long lines over the stern, which had a decided steadying effect, checking us just at the right time and easing that wobbly, uncertain feeling that you always have when running before a heavy sea. The wind was so strong that we were unable to keep the binnacle lamp lighted, and we rigged up the riding light instead. At 9.30 the wind died rapidly, followed by a succession of squalls from several directions, and consequently we were all able to get a bit of sleep during the night, which was providential as the worst was yet to come. When I went on deck at 3 a.m. Wednesday, November 17th, the wind had hauled around nearly to southwest, and it was again blowing hard and raining. It was Dillaway's trick. And, before taking the wheel, I got Fox up and we lowered the trysail and shifted it to the starboard side. There were several wicked rain squalls during the four hours I was at the wheel, but not expecting another gale, I hauled in one of the lines which we were still trailing astern. At seven o'clock, Jim relieved me at the wheel, turning it over to Fox at nine and taking it again from eleven until one. During these six hours, the wind strengthened, and by one o'clock, when I went on again, we could see that we were in for something even worse than the northeaster of the day before. A new and bigger sea had made up over the remains of the old one, causing a confused condition that was worse than anything we had yet encountered. The wind, unlike the steady blow of Tuesday, came in a succession of hard punches, howling and cold and carrying with it the tops of seas that stung like birdshot. The effect was that of a driving blizzard, and the hills and valleys of water were gray and streaked with the foam of broken crests. Bending a heavy iron pail to the end of our second line, we put this over the stern again. This checked us a bit and helped the steering, but it was only a temporary help. As the wind increased, it was clear that we could not carry the trysail much longer without losing it. I shouted to the boys below to break out the sea anchor and the storm jib, which I thought we might need as a trysail on the mizzen to hold her head into it. While I steered, Jim and Fox rigged up a bridle and lashed the shears in the mouth of the bag, which Charles kept from going overboard by the weight of his body. The three-quarter inch line to be used with the sea anchor was already roved through the hose on the end of the bowsprit, and the two parts of it had been led aft, one outside and one inside, 
and lashed to the shrouds to act as a lifeline. When these lashings had been cut and a pig of ballast had been made fast to one of the arms of the sea anchor, all that was necessary was to watch our chance, luff up into the wind, lower the trysail, throw the bag overboard, pay out gradually from the coil in the cockpit with a couple of turns about a quarter bit, and then trust to luck. If we found that the sea anchor was unable to hold her head into it, then we planned to rig the storm jib to the mizzen and flatten it hard down to act as a weather vane. I don't think it would have stayed there long, but we meant to try it anyhow. After carefully rehearsing our parts, Jim and Fox were instructed to go forward, put lifelines about their waists, and lower the trysail as I luffed her into the wind. Fox had already reached the mainmast, and Jim had jumped out of the cockpit into the lee waterway when a big sea came over the port quarter, going completely over me at the wheel, taking my sou'wester with it, and burying Fox, who clutched the mast with his arms and legs, up to his shoulders. Jim had caught the mizzen rigging and shouting down to me through the racket, That was a hell of a big one, Skipper! He started forward again, clawing his way along the handrail. It was just at this moment that the big crash came. Possibly we broached too. I can't say, and it doesn't really matter, for the big, unstable brute that came down on us would have swamped us no matter what position we had been in. Clutching at the wheel, I crouched in the lee corner of the cockpit. I remember going down under tons of solid water, with a last impression of Dillaway's face framed in the porthole as he pumped out the oily bilge water to form a slick. There was no sense of direction or time only a terrible helplessness and a feeling that possibly at last the cruise was over. It is hard to convey any appreciation of the power of such a sea, of the absolute insignificance of any human effort to withstand it. Choking and somewhat surprised that everything was not over, I came up and as the masts lifted themselves out of the water, I looked instinctively to Lourd, sensing what must have happened, and there, seventy-five feet or so from the ship, was Jim's close-cropped head bobbing in an acre of froth, his sou'wester hanging from its cord about his neck, and the air still puffing out the yellow oilskin above his shoulders. At a time like that, you don't think consecutively. Your thoughts come in flashes like pictures on a movie screen. Jim was gone, but we could not leave him. I remembered the request as we left the dock at Badek that I look out for him, for he was all his father had left after the influenza epidemic. I remembered the near tragedy at Drumhead in 1913 and jumped to the waterway to go after him, but with my heavy sea boots and strapped into a long oilskin coat over a number of thicknesses of clothing, I could not have stayed afloat, and there was no time to take things off. Then I thought of the lines astern and yelled and waved to Jim, who evidently got the idea at the same time, for between the crests I could see that he was making for them. There was no possibility of maneuvering the ship in such a sea. Fox, with the presence of mind of a real sailor-man, had doused the trysail. It seems that he, too, had been torn from his hold on the belaying pins and had gone overboard, but had actually regained the ship by way of the mast, which he had caught as it came down on top of him. We were under bare poles, and as we drifted down past Dorset, he succeeded in catching one of the lines, but our headway was still too great. Every time he came to the surface, he was farther from the ship. I could see that the line he had was not the one with the bucket, and with every second I felt that he must reach the end of it. Finally, 
Turning on his back with the line over his shoulder, he was able to hold fast, sort of planing along with his head out of water, but we could see that he was tiring. If he slipped again, one of us would have to go down the line after him, but only as a last resort, for we should all be needed to get him aboard. Gradually, and with the utmost care so as not to break his hold, we hauled in on the line, and as we drew him close under the counter, he looked up with a half-choked grin and said, Well, Skipper, here I am. I think it was the most beautiful display of downright courage that I have ever seen, and it would have brought the tears, had we had time, for any such emotion. And then we found that the combined strength of the three of us was inadequate to the task of lifting him aboard. Clutching his oilskins, we held on, lifting him far out of the water as the stern rose, only to souse him again with every passing sea. We were choking him, but we dared not loosen our hold. I got the boat hook, caught his oilies with the barb, and finally succeeded in prying a leg over the gunwale. Grabbing it with both arms, I lay exhausted in the waterway, determined that at least we'd have that leg. The work of the last few hours and the effects of a recent diet, composed largely of fried flour paste, had weakened us, but we got him aboard at last and passed him down to Dillaway, who was still trapped in the cabin. Then we turned our attention to the sea anchor. Wallowing in the trough, with the seas breaking over us, we threw the bag overboard and waited anxiously for the line to tighten. We felt that possibly it was our last chance. As the strain came on the line, we could see the bag fill just beneath the surface off our starboard beam, but it seemed to have no effect on our position relative to the seas. The line stiffened like an iron rod. Still no effect. And just as we were about to rig the storm jib on the mizzen, the rope parted, and left us still wallowing in the trough. But we had been in this position for at least a quarter of an hour, and although we were severely pounded by the seas, nothing had happened. I felt that the deckhouse would stand the drubbing, and if we could keep the water out, there was still a chance. And so we went below and drew the slide. It was not until then that I realized just what had happened to the typhoon. The companionway steps lay athwart the cabin. The floorboards were up, and great chunks of slag ballast lay against the chart case. Everything movable was in an oily mess on the lee side, and the place looked a total wreck. We had been knocked down, there was no doubt about that, but it was not until we found a stove lid in Dillaway's bunk and discovered ashes from the bottom of the stove and the remains of food that had been in the sink sticking to the trunk above the charts on the starboard side that we realized that we had actually gone down approximately 120 degrees from the vertical. In reading over the log, I find several paragraphs written the following day by the members of the crew, giving their impressions of the knockdown. Here they are. Dorset's Story when Typhoon went under, I was on my way forward to help Uff lower the trysail. I only had the handrail to hang on to. I felt myself going. In fact, I thought the old ship had rolled clear over. I tried to grab the mizzenmast as it went by, but missed it, and the next thing I knew, I had come to the surface seventy-five feet astern of Typhoon. The first thing that popped into my head was to make for the ropes I knew were towing astern. I struck out and managed to grab one of them, but which one I did not know. One of them had a bucket tied on the end. I thought of sliding down to the end and getting a foot in the bucket as the strain was so terrific I nearly lost my hold more than once. The strain eased up, however, when the ship lost headway, 
and I hung on, and after a struggle was pulled safely aboard by the skipper, Charles, and Uff, a little wet and fagged, but otherwise no worse off for the experience. I am certainly glad I didn't slide down to the end of that rope, as it happened to be the one without the bucket. I would like to say right here that I owe my life to the cool-headedness and quick work of my friends. James H. Dorset. Fox's Story I was forward, clearing the trysail halyard. One wave came aboard up around my shoulders, but I managed to hang on. I had just cleared the halyard, when with a roar, it came. I grabbed a belaying pin with each hand and put my legs around the mast, but I was swept overboard. As soon as I lost hold, I saw the mainmast coming down. I hung on to it and was dragged under with it, and then we came up and I sort of fell on the cabin top. I looked aft and was surprised to see WWN and Charles still there, and realized that they were shouting to Jim, who was overboard. I let go the trysail halyard and gave the trysail a hell of a pull down, and it came with a run. Then I ran aft. Jim had managed to hang on to one of the ropes we were dragging astern, so I lent a hand in hauling him aboard, yelling to him to hang on all the time. Poor Jim. He looked like a small girl who had fallen overboard, with his sou'wester trailing astern of him. I was afraid he would not be able to hang on long enough, for the strain must have been terrific, and he was under most of the time, and it was hard work for us to haul him along. At last we got him so that we could catch hold of him, and the three of us hauled for what seemed like hours on his wrist and oily. He gasped once that we were choking him, but personally I preferred to bring him aboard choked, then lose the hold I had, so went on pulling. We got him aboard at last. Then we let go the sea anchor, which held about five minutes, when the hawser broke, so we lay broadside to the sea all night and slept soundly, as we were all of us almost dead beat. We are all of us bruised, and I have broken or sprained a toe. Hope I will never experience a thing like seeing a friend so near death again. Uffa Fox Hookie's Story Mr. Nutting was at the wheel, and we were called out to rig the sea anchor. It was blowing so hard at the time that the sea was whipped off and blowing the crests like snow. At the time we had the knockdown, I was sitting on the sea anchor to keep it from blowing overboard. I looked to windward and saw a very large wave coming and grabbed the mizzenmast with my left arm. I heard the wave hit, being blinded with water. The next thing I saw, she was beaten down with her mizzenmast under. I was not surprised to see her knocked down, having experienced somewhat the same thing the day before when I was at the wheel. Then I thought all was up. When she came up, I saw Jim about fifty yards away, and thought all was up with him. It was lucky we had the ropes astern, one of which he got. I pulled in on both ropes for all I was worth, not knowing which one he had hold of. It took us about ten minutes to get him to the ship, having as much as we could do to get him aboard, having sea boots and oilskins on. I have never been so pleased as when we got Jim aboard safely. I helped put the sea anchor over, which parted, and then we all went down in the cabin, leaving her to look after herself. It was a great experience, which I would not have missed for the world. Charles W. Hookie Dillaway's Story while the sailors were outside preparing to put out the sea anchor, I remained below and took charge of the bilge pump. 
While standing at the pump and gazing out of the starboard porthole, there was a roar, the port was filled with water pouring in, and the boat was suddenly flat on her starboard side. Because of our earlier experience, I knew instantly that she had been knocked down and stupidly wondered if she was coming up this time. She failed to move for an instant, and I had a fleeting feeling of being trapped. Then she slowly sagged up, and I turned to survey the damage. It looked like a wreck. Flooring heaved up and mixed with ballast, everything from the port side in a confused mass. I had some thought of starting to clear up, but I could not seem to see any place to begin. I then turned and looked out of the port and saw Mr. Nutting, Charles, and Fox tugging at a rope over the stern and Jim way back in the water. The situation flashed over me, and my first thought was, I wonder if anyone released the trysail. The stairs were on top of the heap, so I jumped on the engine flywheel and tried to open the hatch, but it was stuck tight. Pounding with my fists and head failed to move it. I looked out again. They were still pulling, and Jim was nearer, but it was a hard pull, and I realized that another hand was needed. I renewed my attack on the hatch when I heard them shouting, Hold on, Jim. During successive views and frenzied attacks on the hatch, I saw them reach over for Jim, and they seemed unable to get him aboard. A feeling of unutterable despair came over me at the thought of my inability to lend a hand, and I tried a lump of ballast on the slide, but with no result. When I next looked out, Jim was in the waterway, and I felt as weak as a rag. Manson Dillaway when we went below after the sea anchor had carried away, we were surprised that the motion was not nearly so bad as we might have expected, considering our position in the trough of the sea. Every now and then, of course, there was the crash of a sea, but such things had long since ceased to be a novelty. When a crest flopped down on us, the shock actually seemed less severe, probably because we had no way on and consequently yielded to the force of the blow. After a superficial cleaning up of the cabin, we ransacked the food locker and prepared a sketchy meal from the last small can of beef, the last can of vegetables, and the few remaining crackers. There was also a little soup left, and this combination, the items of which we had been holding out for an emergency, was a grateful change from our recent monotonous diet of fried flour and water. A bottle of Domac Cognac from Spain, which I was saving for some sufferer from the Constitutional Amendment, was broken out, and we sang everything we could think of out of sheer joy at having Dorset back again. As I think back on it now, it was a wonderful picture. The dimly lighted cabin, the wreckage, the songs punctuated by the crashing blows from the breaking seas, and through it all the constant humming of the steel shrouds sounding through the fabric of the boat like the drone note on a bagpipe. We lighted the new hurricane-proof riding light we had obtained in England, pulled the slide, and tried to lash it to the main boom, but it was blown out immediately by the force of the wind. Again and still again we tried it without success, and finally let it go at that, for, after all, the chance of being run down in a sea that must have forced the largest liner to heave to was very slight. Then we all turned in and slept soundly. Note, our experience in lying safely in the trough during the storm on November 17th opens up an interesting line of speculation on the best method of handling small boats in a heavy sea. 
If you are running before it and the strength of the wind naturally seems less, and this fact may cause you to carry on longer than you should, the right time to heave to is a question, and just how to heave to is another. My experience with sea anchors leads me to believe that if the boat's head can be kept into the wind, it is more comfortable and safer to lie to a sea anchor than to heave to, say, under a trysail. Even under a trysail, the tendency is to work to windward, whereas lying to a sea anchor, the boat gives with the seas and gradually goes to leeward. But if there is any difficulty in keeping the boat's head to the wind, I think the safest move is to do as we did and allow her to take care of herself. It is surprising how well a boat will come through if left to her own devices. This would be dangerous, of course, with open boats, although dories have been picked up at sea, their bottoms encrusted with sea growth, indicating that they had been adrift for months and still showing no evidence of having taken water aboard. Captain Tom Day speaks of having allowed the Detroit to lie broadside to the seas during his trip across the Atlantic in her, and, while this practice would be dangerous with a lightly constructed boat without ballast and with light deck structures, it seems to be thoroughly practical with a strong, ballasted craft so designed that the water may be kept out. The discomfort due to the motion seems to be less in this position than it is when hove to, due to the fact that the boat yields to the breaking seas easily instead of resisting them. End of chapter 14